0: Can God rig an election? Before we begin this very sensitive topic, we need to pray. And before we pray, I need to solicit your prayers. On Monday, we'll be flying to what has once again become the world's largest city, Tokyo, Japan. To begin next Friday evening... A very concentrated ten-lecture evangelistic series in that city. The Faith for Today program, the evidence, and you heard about the evidence, and you know I have the privilege of of hosting that telecast. That telecast has been on the air in Tokyo, and so these public meetings are now uh, intended to segue with that telecast. The leaders in Tokyo are eager to somehow connect with postmodern secular Japanese. They are no different than postmodern secular Westerners. They are essentially Westerners. You may be interested to know that less than 1% of Japan's populace is Christian. Half the population of the United States, and yet less than 1% of that. Uh, Belongs to the Christian church. And so they're eager to connect with both Christian Japanese and uh, postmodern secular Japanese. And incidentally, the meetings are going to be conducted right beside the Adventist hospital where I was born. Grew up uh, for 14 years in that great land. And so not only is this going to be a huge challenge, but you must understand it's also a personal joy to go home again. I'm earnestly appealing for your prayer partnership. I have learned in our short journey together that when you pray, God powerfully responds. And so, as they say, please cover me as I go in. Let's pray together. Oh, God. We sang these words to you just a moment ago. In times of great decision, be with us, God, we pray. Give us a vision of Jesus' way. What is Jesus' way? On behalf of all of us, dear Father, I would like to humbly ask that your word would bring teaching to this moment and to our journeys. And that here in your presence, we might be assured of your leadership. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can God rig an election? Open your Bible, please, to the Epistle of Romans, chapter 13. In just a few hours, our nation will be trekking to voting booths across this land to select the next president of the United States of America. And I'm going to just going kind to of muse out loud with you. This has to be one of the most, if not the most, hotly contested and conflicted presidential elections we've had in our lifetime, perhaps when it's all over, ever in our history. And I don't mind telling you, the thought has occurred to me, that when we come back in a couple of weeks, it is possible that our nation will still not know who the next president of the United States is. Now, I say that uh, without a tongue in the cheek, because you have been following the news. I must tell you that I am personally praying, and I hope you are doing the same, that God will somehow make this election, for the sake of this nation, the results will be decisive enough to preempt, The political parties turning to the courts to decide this election. And by the way, have you seen an election so injected with religion? WashingtonPost.com carried this piece entitled just this last week, Is God an American Voter? in which they surveyed the international news media outlets who have been bemoaning the unabashed way the American public has injected religion into this uh, this ritual. And I, we just say to the world, so sorry, but that's simply the way we live life and do business. If you watched the third presidential debate, and I think most of you did, you remember that the, the debate moderator, Bob Schieffer, turned to both candidates, himself injecting the question... I want you to tell us where you stand. Spirituality, God and religion, where is it? What does that all mean to you? And so we heard from one candidate, George W. Bush, our president and evangelical Protestant. And then we heard from the other candidate, John Kerry, a Roman Catholic. Before, then and since, both candidates have been appealing to voters on the basis of their faith confessions. All of this has surely reminded us, those of us old enough... Of the first Roman Catholic candidate for president and how John F. Kennedy sought to allay the fears of Protestants in particular on that September day in 1960 before the election when he addressed a group of clergy in conservative Texas, conservative Protestant clergy. I want to read to you the words that our president spoke before he was president then. I'm quoting him now. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference. How the times have changed. And where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him, end quote. We have come, ladies and gentlemen, a very long way since that hesitant day. Have we not? I mean, you think about it. Back then we feared religion might crop up in politics. Today we get worried when it doesn't. What is the religion of that guy, please? Now we're facing a menagerie of hot-button, moral, religious, and political issues so diverse and so divisive that Seventh-day Adventist Christian voters struggle over how, in good faith, God would have us vote. Wouldn't you love to know where God stands today? Huh? would you? Well, I happen to know, and I'm going to tell you this morning. I know that there are a bunch of you here figured that's exactly where Dwight's going to be coming from. And that's why I inserted that line. Actually, I do not know. Um, I've gotten emails. I've had conversations with you. And I also know my own heart. I know I know how conflicted my mind and heart are over what would be best for the church, what would be best for the nation, what would be best for the world. I got an email from one of you just this last week, telling me in no uncertain terms that you know exactly what my political persuasions are. I got a kick out of that email since I don't even know what they are. And so I thought, well, man, that is prescient. So how does where, where does God stand in this election? Can he rig an election? Okay, enough of the pastor. Let's go to Paul. Let's let Paul do the teaching today. Open your Bible, please. We want to know. Open your Bible, please, to the book that is the, the grid and the grist for our journey this school year at Andrews University. Open the Bible, not to Romans 3 where we left off last week. When you and I are back together again, we'll continue where we left off. Let's go, however, now. Jump ahead to Romans chapter 13. A passage that surely might have a word of counsel for us in this conflicted and contested moment in our nation's journey. Romans chapter 13, speaking for us as Christians. I cannot speak for those who do not believe. I'm thinking thinking of your faith and my faith as a faith community. Romans chapter 13, I'll be in the New King James Version today. Pick it up in verse 1, please. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, Paul is writing. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Paul's point, governments and governing authorities have been established by God. By the way, let it be clear, he is talking about governing authorities and not political parties. That point is so critical that I want you to write it down, please. Take out your study guide right now in your worship bulletin today. There is a study guide for you. Thank you, ushers, for putting. If you didn't get a study guide, hold your hand up. We'll get a study. We, we will put one in your hands momentarily. Those of you watching on television right now, let me give you our website. Put it on the screen for you. www. There you see it. www.pmchurch.tv Keep your hands up, ushers. Hold your hands up. And Ushers, please go all the way to the back wwwpmchurch.tv. Click onto our series from the book of Romans. It's called Wine and Milk." And today's teaching is entitled, "Can God irrig- Can God Rig an Election?" Click onto that, the moment you do, you'll have the study guide. All right. Everybody get one hop up in the balcony as well. All right, let's go to the very first line on the study guide. And let's make sure we have it down. Paul speaks of governing authorities. Let it be clear. He's talking about governing authorities, not political parties. Right in political parties. He's not talking about that. Right now I'm reading Art Lindsley's powerful book, True Truth. Defending Absolute Truth in a Relativistic World. And when I teach preaching this next semester, that book is going to be one of our required texts. True Truth. He grapples over how do Christians deal with the reality of politics. And I have his quotation here. You have to fill the quotation out in order for it to be complete for you. So keep your pen handy. I'm reading now from Art Lindsley. We have infallible absolutes in Scripture. But we encounter fallen situations that are so complex that it is difficult to know which way to go. This is particularly the case with politics. Write it in, please. It's what we struggle with. Politics. In some debates, believers... Like you and me, honestly, differ on the best course to take, and it is difficult to say which position is better. In other cases, the moral principles are clear, but the matter of getting a law through the political process dilutes its purity. Punchline How do we deal with agonizing circumstances? I'm telling you what, I have never seen conversations among like minded people so agonizing as we have wrestled with the meaning of this election. This punchline, make sure you get it. How do we deal with agonizing circumstances where various absolutes seem to conflict and where we need to settle for less? We need to settle for less than what we want. Did you catch that? In politics, there are times when you have to settle as a Christian for less than what you want. Neither major candidate. Neither major political party represents the fullness of what we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians stand for. The moral agenda and deep faith conviction of one candidate is very closely aligned to our own moral convictions as a community of faith. But championing of the disenfranchised and the marginalized and the separation of church and state seem to fall under the bailiwick of the other candidates. So where then shall we stand? In the words of Art Lindsley, how do we deal with agonizing circumstances where various absolutes seem to conflict and where we need to settle for less than we want? Write this down. You, there's not a place in the study guide to do it. Just write it down in your head. You can only vote for one, which means you have to settle for less. You will have to. Impossible. You will have to settle for less. You can only vote for one. And which is the less that we as a community of faith should be settling for? Let's go back to Romans. Romans 13 doesn't answer us. Instead, Romans 13 is deeply concerned with the Christian and his relationship, her her attitude and relationship with the ruling government. Let me pick it up in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority of the governing authorities... Resist the ordinance or the institution of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers, verse 3, did you catch this? Rulers are not a terror to good works. Rulers, that would be presidents. That would be prime ministers. That would be governors. That would be judges. That would be the police in Berrien Springs. Guess what? That would also be campus security on the campus of Andrews University. Oh! The next time you're tempted to smart mouth the peer that has pulled you over. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then drive the speed limit on campus. That's Paul's point, isn't it? Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what's good and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4, for he is God's minister. Greek word is deacon. He's God's deacon. The ruling authority is God's servant. He is God's servant to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's deacon servant, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of the wrath that you may incur, but also for conscience' sake. That man, that woman has been placed there by God. Show respect in honoring your relationship with God. Show respect. Verse 6. For because of this, You also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers. Now, Paul uses another Greek word that actually refers to religious, the the word from whence comes our our English word, liturgy. These are liturgy servants. They are religious servants of God. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's servants, attending continually to this very thing. Final verse 7. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs, to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Give to everyone what is due to him or her. Paul's point. Write it in, please. The state is a divine institution. The state is a divine institution with divine authority. Thank you, John Stott. Wait a minute. You're talking about Hitler's regime? Then you're talking about Saddam Hussein. God set up those regime regimes. John Stott himself, John R. W. Stott, the Anglican preacher has wrestled over the meaning of that. And uh, you've got his words right here in the study guide. Let me let me read them with you. Paul cannot be taken. This is start writing now and you have to fill it in. Paul cannot be taken to mean that all the Caligulas, that's that bloody Roman emperor, all the Caligulas, Herods, Nero's and Domitians of New Testament times and all the Hitler, Stalin's, Amin's and Saddam's of our times We're personally appointed by God. He's not suggesting that. He's not suggesting that God is responsible for their behavior. Nor is Paul suggesting that their authority is in no circumstance to be resisted. What is Paul saying then? Paul means rather that all human authority is, write it in, derived. All human authority is derived from God's authority. So that we can say to rulers what Jesus said to Pilate. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. All human authority is derived from God's authority. Paul is not declaring that all governments and all courts are just. If that were the case, Paul would not have appealed when he came to his own court hearing. He would not have appealed to a higher court. He knew that court could not bring justice and he said, take me to the next level. I'll go all the way to the top. I appeal to Caesar. He's not saying every every court is fair or every government is right. His point, again, all human authority is derived from God's authority, from divine authority. And by the way, a classic illustration of that is the other R13 chapter in the Bible. What would be the other R13 chapter in the Bible? Romans 13 and take a look at Revelation 13. Go to the Bible's last book. Go to the apocalypse. I want to show you how much of the authority on earth is derived from God. Revelation 13. Bible's last book, go to Revelation chapter 13. Take a look at this. Count how many times you come to this this little couplet. Was given, or was granted. Was given, was given, was given, was given. Watch this. By the way, we're going to Revelation 13 because Seventh-day Adventists believe that behind the shadowy symbols of the apocalypse there are two religio-political powers. We even see the United States doing not? in Revelation chapter 13. Watch this. Revelation 13... Drop down to verse 5. Speaking of the first beast. And he was given. There you go. Number one. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority. He didn't come up with the authority. Somebody has entrusted authority to him. Drop down to verse 7. And it was granted or given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him. Number four. Authority was given him over every tribe and uh, language and people. Now drop down to the second beast uh, in, in chapter 13, verse 14. And the second beast, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do. He was given the right to exercise that authority. And then verse 15, second beast again, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Six times. By the way, the number six is rather significant in Revelation 13, is it not? Six is the number of imperfection. Six times it's recorded. These two beasts are given authority, which only goes to prove. Write this down, please. It only goes to prove that even the devil himself. Write that in. Even the devil himself operates upon this earth with a very derived authority from God. The devil can only exercise that authority as God grants it to him. Romans 13 is clear. Human authority is derived from divine authority. So then, pastor, how shall we vote? You ask. i tell you how we have to vote. We have to vote reading in between the lines of Romans chapter 13. If you will read between those short lines, there will emerge three vital principles that can guide us as Christians to vote for. For the sake of our nation and will guide us with an Adventist conscience to vote intelligently as well. Three principles. Write these down, please. I'll share these three and then sit down. Principle number one. Write it down. Recognize. We must recognize God's sovereignty. Write in the word sovereignty. For months now, as I've been watching this mounting instability, this this growing uncertainty, not only in our nation, but in the whole world. Look at the price of oil. Look at the edge on which human society now keeps teetering back and forth. As I've been watching, I have found great solace, great comfort, and hope in the prayer of Daniel. And I want you to, I want you to go to Daniel. By the way, I hope. I've mentioned this before, but I hope you take every opportunity to mark up your Bible. And here in my Bible, in my Bibles, in Daniel 2, I've used fluorescent yellow. I find these words so comforting and so significant for our journey toward the future. And so mark your Bible up, whatever it is, whatever translation you have, just keep it marked up. It needs to be the grid that keeps drawing you. And many a late Friday night, I will go back to Daniel 2 and just sit there and meditate on this. So concerned I am for the future of the church and, and the future of this nation. We've got some hope here. There is, there is a word. From God to us. Daniel 2, uh, drop down to verse 19, please. You remember, Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream. He can't remember the dream. They're going to kill all the wise men. Daniel hears and says, listen, we will pray. And then God answers the prayer in verse 19. Then the secret of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now he's singing his, his prayer to God. Daniel answered verse 20. And said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. Verse 21. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes the kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And I love this in verse 22. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what, he knows what is in the what? Read it out. He, knows what is in the, he knows what is in the darkness. And light dwells with him. You know, I don't know what, uh, what, what, what color this nation will move into next for terror alert, but there is a God in the universe who knows exactly what is happening in that darkness. He knows, and he dwells in the light. Not only have I marked this up, but I've, I've jotted a few verses down, and I want to share, if you want sometime, jot them in the same column here, but just some corroboration here. Just turn the page over to Daniel chapter 4, please. God is speaking through Daniel to the same King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and watch this. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. Daniel speaking. This decision is by the decree of the watchers. Those are those celestial visitants. And the sentence is by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know. Now, here's where you can circle it in your, in your Bible in red. That the most, so that we can know that the most high rules in the kingdom of man gives it to whomever He will, and sets over it the lowest or the lowliest of men. That's the whole theme line of the book of Daniel. God is in control. He sets up and He removes. Let me just take you over for one other text. It's a parallel here. Verse 25, just flip over to 25, same chapter. Towards the end of 25, making the same point, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever. And then I've circled this. He chooses. He chooses. The leaders on earth, He chooses. Wow! I also jotted down there Proverbs uh, chapter eight in my column to Daniel two, right beside Daniel two twenty one. I jotted down Proverbs chapter eight. Take a look at that. Maybe you want to put a circle around these two verses. Proverbs eight, verse fifteen. God speaking through the metaphor of wisdom. Verse fifteen, Proverbs eight. By me, God says, kings reign. And rulers decree justice. Verse 16. By me, princes rule and nobles and all the judges of the earth. One more text to scribble down. Psalm 75. The scriptures are replete with this profound assurance. And in the midst of such a conflicted and contested time, we can find uh, solace indeed in this assurance. Okay, this would be Psalm 75. Circle verse 7. But God is the Judge. Capital J Judge. God is the Judge. He puts down one and He exalts another. His call. He chooses. Principle number one. Recognize God's sovereignty. And then I've got to tell you, at the top of every preaching Bible I have, at the top of the page for Daniel 2, and I have a few preaching Bibles, I have inscribed these words, and I I hope you'll hang on to them too. They're there in your study guide. Let's put them on the screen here. Ministry of Healing. Ministry of Healing, that would be page 4, 417. Above the distractions of the earth, God sits enthroned. I love this. All things are open to His divine survey. And from His great and calm eternity, He orders that which His providence sees best. You know, after the, the, the very contested election in Florida, you remember four years ago, and by the way, you know that we may face the same thing all across the country this time around. But after four years ago, the, 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 the mantra, the chant was, every vote counts, your vote counts, every vote counts, it counts, it counts, it counts. But on the basis of Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, there is this wonderfully reassuring reminder that the one vote that does count in this election is not yours, it is not mine, it is God's vote. Take a look at Daniel 2.21 from the New Living Translation. He determines the course of world events. I love this translation, by the way. He determines the course of world events. He removes kings and sets others on the throne. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. So, ladies and gentlemen, students, young adults, vote your conscience and be at peace. You need to know this. The world will not last longer or shorter based on how you vote in this election. Ah, People write to me and say, well, you know, you know, Pastor, I mean, if I vote this way, would we do this? If I vote this way, would it? It's craziness. The, 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 The sovereignty of God is our assurance that the future of this planet and the human race is not hanging on how we vote when we step into that booth. Of course, every vote counts. But principle number one, as we face this election, recognize God's Sovereignty principle number two, write it in, please remember our priority because God is our king. We have a higher allegiance to another king and another kingdom higher than any other allegiance to any governing authority. And you know the story. And I love the the clarity of the passion of these young adults who, like Glenn, move their way up into uh, high government circles and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That moment when Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar comes to them and he says, guys, you, you somehow got the you, you got the uh, you got my order, my my imperial edict mixed up. I meant to bow down when I give the command. And these three boys in what verse is that? Verse 16 of Daniel chapter three. They look into the face of Nebuchadnezzar and they said, oh, king, we we're not we, we know exactly what you meant. We understand the fiery furnace, but. King, we cannot give credence or obedience to your edict for our God is able to deliver us. And even if he does not, we must practice civil disobedience here. We cannot obey. We must practice civil disobedience here. We cannot worship your gods. We cannot obey your command. Talking about civil disobedience as a a template for those of us living in the third millennium. Here's a case where they obeyed the direct command and legislation of their king. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, just because a president or a presidential candidate says it so, does not make it so. Romans 13 is clear. All human authority is derived from divine authority, but it is not a command for us to disobey God in order to obey The governing authorities. In fact, jot this down, please. Acts 5.29 is really the mantra for civil disobedience as Seventh-day Adventist Christians one day. Jot down Acts 5.29. We, Peter speaking, we ought to obey God rather than man. I know this morning here in the Pioneer Church here at Andrews, we are not quite a hundred nations represented. We must never forget that our first allegiance is to the highest king and the highest kingdom. Which is why Jesus can say, you remember, to Pilate just before he is executed by the government, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting right now. They would be killing and destroying. But my servants are not of this kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are the ones who will be called the sons and the daughters of God. Three principles. Principle number one, recognize God's sovereignty. Principle number two, remember our priority. And finally, principle number three, render your responsibility. No question. In between the lines there in Romans chapter 13, F.F. Bruce, the New Testament scholar. A bit of balancing admonition as we we struggle to know how, how to respond in the face of perhaps... Someday, necessary civil disobedience. Here's what F.F. Bruce, you have it in your study guide. Fill it in, please. Christians will voice their no. All right. Christians will voice their no to Caesar's unauthorized demands the more effectively if they have shown themselves ready to say yes to all his authorized demands. If we're not known as anarchists, tossing grenades everywhere we go with the government, then when the day comes and we have to say no to the government, we will have to say no based on a history of having been obedient and having said yes. That'd been an important, important factor in the response of the government to the faith convictions of this faith community. Uh, one more time to Romans 13. Remember verse 7? Romans 13, verse 7. What are our responses to the government? Paul says, hey, I'll tell you, doesn't mince any words here, uh, Romans 13, 7. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs or revenues to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. You remember that day when they were trying to nail Jesus? They were looking for a bit of, uh, of uh, empirical evidence to convict him and to execute him before the week is out. And you remember they trapped him uh, over his attitude towards taxes. You remember that? They, they said if he says pay your taxes to Rome, then they would call him a heretic to the community of faith. And if he says don't pay your taxes, then he's a, a rebel to the government. And in Luke, Luke 20, and by the way, Luke is the only one to catch this. In Luke 20, uh, verse 20, we note how, in fact, the subtle undercurrent for that, uh, for that trap has to do with the power of government and the authority of government. And only Luke makes this observation. This is Luke 20, verse 20. So they watched him, watching Jesus, and they sent some spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him, and only Luke inserts this, to the power and the authority of the governor. This is a government issue. Will he be supportive of, uh, of government? And you remember, so, so, teacher, shall we pay taxes or not? And you remember, Jesus asked for a coin. And by the way, as you prepare to vote, please note, Jesus did not have a coin to even show. He could not reach inside his pocket and say, hey, okay, I'll show you a coin. Take a look at this. He has to ask somebody else to flip him a coin so that he can make his illustration. The king of the universe, so... Identified with the marginalized and the disenfranchised. And I'm so proud of Glenn for taking on, as you heard just a moment ago, taking on homeless veterans and standing up for them and their rights. Jesus so identified himself with the poor and the alienated of society that he was dirt poor himself. I am concerned. Should we lose that? Identity. Jesus said, as as, as it is with the leader, so it is with the servant. Where the master is, the servant must be. We must not lose that identity with the impoverished. Anyway, he says, give me a coin. So somebody throws him a coin. He shows the coin, you remember, and it has Caesar's head on it. And he says to them, whose head is on here? And they all say, Caesar, Caesar. We know this one. What's your point? He says, render. How does it go? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God. The things that are God's. Okay, so what belongs to Caesar? Write it down. Final blanks that you fill in for this teaching. What belongs to Caesar? Number one, your taxes. Of course, Paul has already made that point. Jesus makes the point. Your taxes to keep government functioning. What else belongs to Caesar? Your votes to keep government filled. We have to have personnel to lead us. That's what voting's all about. Your taxes, your votes, and your prayers. Write it in. Number three, your prayers to keep government faithful. The same Paul who commands us to give to Caesar, urges us to pray for Caesar. Last text. Last text. First Timothy chapter 2. Isn't this something? I mean, we're talking about Nero. This is Nero of whom Paul speaks here. First Timothy chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men and women. Just pray for everybody, will you? Verse 2, for kings, that would be Caesar, that would be Nero. Pray for kings and all who are in authority. Why should we pray for our leaders? Ah, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires men and women to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Ladies and gentlemen, in the end, that is what matters most. Not our votes for the king, but our prayers for the leadership. Because as citizens of an even more powerful king and kingdom, God is calling us, as Paul reminds us here, to share with him his passion to save all humanity. Republicans, Democrats, and for for the sake of fairness, the Ralph Nader people, Reach out to Hindus and Muslims, Jews and Christians, the rich and the poor, the literate and the illiterate, the strong and the weak, men and women, boys and girls. Let us say our prayers today, therefore. Let us say our prayers first today and then let us cast our votes on Tuesday, voting for the leadership we believe can best keep open the door of opportunity for our highest king and our truest kingdom. Can God rig an election? Of course he can. Of course he can. Especially if it means the salvation of more and more and more of his earth children. Which way will he, will he rig it this time? You'll see. You'll see. So watch and pray and vote. I wonder, does anybody here have a question about some of these issues that we wrestle with as Christians headed to the polling place on Tuesday? I have a few moments to to take a question or two if you have one. There's a microphone right here in the center aisle. Oh, and there are two back there. I see there are two also in the back as well. Anybody have a question on how we journey as a community of faith into this, into this moment? It took just a moment or two in first service, but then... Just step up to a mic if you do. Albert, our worship leader, said, Dwight, you know, you really need to plant a question. I said, no, no, I don't like dealing with a planted question. Anybody have a question? Yes, sir. What do you have to say to a person who feels that there is no choice and uh, it's not worth voting at all? That's a good question. What do you have to say to someone who says, "Look, there just is no choice here. I'm not going to vote." Period. Well, on the basis of Romans 13, I feel strongly that we have an obligation as the followers of Jesus Christ to be proactive in the the life of the of the nations that we that we are citizens of. We've we got you know 90 nations here. Our responsibility to Caesar is to help in the, in the operation and the governance of, of the lands that we serve. You know, we go back to that mantra where we certainly learned four years ago that no vote is inconsequential. Render to Caesar what Caesar needs. Caesar needs the, the support of his citizens. And I think with good conscience, we can cast that vote. Will it make a difference? That will be for God to decide. That's a good question. Should we just, because it's hopeless, forget it? No, I don't, I don't believe it's hopeless at all. I believe every single one of us registered to vote in this county ought to be voting on uh, Tuesday. It's a good question. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Who is more responsible for our care for the poor and the needy and the disenfranchised? We as individuals or the government of whom we are citizens? All right. That's a good question. In an ideal world every Christian is on the edge always looking out for the needy for the poor and for the uh, disenfranchised We don't live in an ideal world And so is it is it possible that government could take the funding that we as Christians provide it and exercise the right to provide funding for For the needy and for the poor? Absolutely. But I think uh, we, if we defer to the government, we actually are deferring a God-given responsibility and assignment. Jesus said, inasmuch as you do this to the least of these, you are doing it to me. Every poor person in Benton Harbor, and we just came out of five weeks in Benton Harbor together, but every poor person in Benton Harbor is is an earth child of God himself. And if I know that poverty, I see that poverty, for me to close my mind to that and my heart to that poverty, I believe is a moral issue. I cannot defer to the government to step in and provide the moral support that God calls me to do. It's a good question. Yes, uh, question there, please. Seems like there are many issues for us to consider in this election. There are. uh, On all sides. What is the priority issue for me as a Christian? For me, that is the one question I probably cannot answer on your behalf. I'll tell you why, that's the safest answer to give, too. I believe in political survival. <laughs> now, I, and I tell you why, I, I, I don't say that uh, lightly. Because as we just read from Art Lindsley, there are some matters where believers, as, as much as we love each other and care for each other, we just cannot see eye to eye. We had different mamas and papas. We had different, we had different philosophies that we were reared in. We simply will not respond together. Uh, in, in uniformity. But I believe that we can, be, we can be bound up as a Christian community in unity. And I believe, as I, I, I entered just a moment ago, that the, the most compelling issue for us as Christians, and maybe I can't answer your question this way, the most compelling issue for us as Christians is to take the everlasting gospel to the world in this generation for the sake of God returning to this earth and bringing to an end the tragic, tragic story of human uh, survival. And so, I can't tell you how to vote on the basis of that priority, passion and commitment. But it would seem that, I, that, that that's probably all I need to say. It would, <laughs> you know, it's it's just like, yeah, yes. So, sir, a good question. In the next 72 hours, you and Jesus need to wrestle over what is most important. Because as Art Lindsay did say, you'll have to settle for less. In order to get this, you're going to also get what you didn't want here. There is no way we can get everything that we believe God wants us to have. So, you and Jesus together. And and realize that in the end, your vote is not going to be the decisive factor for for the survival of the human race. Yes, sir, young man. Um, Which candidate do you prefer? (laughs) Well, I have been looking for a good candidate, and I was hoping you were going to announce your candidacy today. And, uh, yeah, that that is a very good question. Well, (laughs) and I haven't voted yet. And so governor of Michigan when he came to our school. Uh, how did she respond? How did he respond? How did she, the governor of Michigan? You asked her? Uh, him. Whatever he is. <laughs> well, you've been around a long time. Oh, you. The state rep- representative. Oh, the said. state representative. Um, All right. <laughs> he All said right. it's a secret war. <laughs> That's good counsel. Keep it a secret. All right. Thank you, young man. I tell you what, I'm proud of little boys who just get up and say, look, I got a question. Let me talk for a little bit. Very good question. And you know what? The moment you ask that question, sir, every person in this congregation immediately put a picture in his or her mind and said, this is who I'm voting for. And that's good. You helped us to reflect and think. All right. Yes, sir. We've been programmed to assume that there is going to be controversy. Yes, after the election is over, and that we will probably see things in the courts. Uh, there are a lot of. There's been a lot of things said about uh, voter fraud and this and that. How passionately, as Christ as Christians, should we uh, voice our commitments, or or? Uh, be, be involved in this process. How passionately should we be involved? Are you talking about the post-election uh, uh, debate that might be... Uh, you know what? I'm just going to give you my personal, my personal opinion here. I think we ought to lie low. I think Christians, in particular Seventh-day Adventist Christians, have such a compelling higher allegiance that we ought not to weigh in in huge doses in a public sort of way. Paul was living in an empire that was bereft of morality. There could have been times when he could have made a ch- become a champion for uh, rights issues. But Paul, God bless him, chose to, to operate below the radar screen of politics, concentrating on his mission and his passion to help God seek and save every man and woman and child who is lost. And I think we're better off, if there's going to be a debate in Berrien County, that we stay out of that debate. That we keep our nose to the gospel grindstone and be about our Father's business. Yes, sir. Chris, let me just take a couple more. Okay, in Revelations uh, 13.11 it says, The beast coming out of the earth had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke... Like a dragon, yes. Does the beast out of the earth now speak like a dragon, and should that be uh, a part of our priorities as we vote? That's a good question, Chris. Uh, Does the beast now? See if I have it right. Does the beast now speak like a dragon? Is that what you're asking? Does the beast now, the lamb-like beast now, speak like like a dragon? I don't believe it speaks like a dragon. As we, that as our deepest convictions sense that it will one day speak as. I believe that we have precious liberties right now that are worth preserving. And by the way, people come and they say some of these conversations, well, should we vote this way or vote that way? Hey, anytime you have a chance to vote, vote always for keeping the door open for the proclamation of the Gospel, the everlasting Gospel. And so, uh, I don't believe that that second power has yet brought itself fully to the manifestation of, of that almost satanic-like rule that it will bring to the world, I don't believe that yet, Chris. I want to go in closing to our knees, because I don't want to end with the Q and A. I want to end with us in prayer, and I wish you would pray with the person beside you right now. Simply pray that God will show Himself sovereign in the election we are about to enter together. God's will be done on earth. How does it go? As it is in heaven. Would you do that? Find somebody right beside you. If you don't want to pray with anybody, it's okay. But let's go to our knees together as we conclude in prayer.